You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, May 23rd, 2018, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Good evening, folks. I have um, what I believe is probably the cutest thing that's happened so far being a parent and one of my most proudest moments. Ooh, okay. Your most uh, proudest? Whoa. Yes, my most, most proudest. Are you ready for this? Sure. Uh, yes. I uh, asked my son what he wants to be when he grows up. What you? What is it called, Dylan? An astrophysicist, Nadia. I want. I wanted you to finish. Did you hear what he said? An astrophysicist. 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 Oh my god, that's awesome. <laughs> he is like, he is fully like starting to comprehend more complicated things now, and he gets like we're on a planet now. Yeah, that's yeah, cool. We, yeah, it is so cool. Like he is, you know, he he had a fascination with volcanoes. Now he's fascinated with tornadoes because we had tornadoes. Oh, sure. But something just clicked over the last few days. Well, did he get that from Julia? I think he did. He was talking. So Julia is Steve's oldest daughter and they, they, she, they, she's been talking to him quite a bit. Yeah, but she's he- an astrophysics major, just got back from college. Nice. Probably an astrophysicist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she's going to be an astrophysicist. Astrophysicist, guys, get it right. Astrophysicist. <laughs> Astrophysicist. Yeah. Two Zs. So I told my wife we are not correcting that. That it's astrophysicist, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> so uh, yes. we crossed a bit of a milestone this week. We produced yeah. our one hundredth piece of premium content for our members and patrons. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> so if you awesome. if you become either an SG a premium member or a premium patron, that's the eight dollars a month level then you will get access to our entire back catalog of premium content, which includes extended interviews, extra segments from the show, a few videos, uh, and we're producing more all the time. We're really trying to you know, increase the rate at which we're producing uh, the premium content as our membership grows. And also, if you, if you are a member or a patron and there's something you would like to see in premium content, let us know. We actually do take requests. And we do get emails occasionally, and I do listen to them. So we will try to produce the type of premium content that you want to see. So just let us know. And the reason we're doing all this is because we really do appreciate the support that we get from our listeners. You know, we, we produce the podcast for free. We've, we're following that model where, yep, here's our podcast. It's for free. This is all about promoting science and critical thinking. But to support all that we do and give us the ability to do even more, uh, there is a, a – completely voluntary membership right now i think um we we do prefer if people sign up on patreon because we're we're trying to increase our community there as much as possible and the support that you give us by being a patron does really completely change the game for us that enables us to do so much more science and skeptical content uh and, and we really really do greatly appreciate all the support that you guys give and I think we're also building a really fun community there. We have a, we have a lot of fun going on the Discord server and you know talking with uh, with our patrons and you know interacting more and more. We're going to we have our first uh, live Q and A for members coming up on June third, right, Jay? Yeah, we'll be broadcasting uh, on June third at five p.m. Eastern time. Uh, what's the UTC on that, Bob? 10, 10, 10 p.m. UTC. Yeah, plus five hours. Yes. <laughs> And we're going to be answering emails and um, you know letting 
letting our patrons interact as much as they want to, which is always a lot of fun. I've been spending a lot of time on the Discord, and that's a ton of fun. Yeah. Yep. If you're interested in becoming a member, you can read all about it at patreon.com forward slash skeptics guide. All right. Let's get on with the regular content of the show. Kara, you're going to give us what's the word. This, Kara, is a fun one. I'm going to yeah, jump it's on a fun one. This is a fun one. <laughs> <laughs> I like this one. And it's one that, although I feel like I knew of it, I don't think I knew the difference. So we got an email from Gavin from Australia. Um, no, no last name Gavin. And he said, I think a good topic for you for what's the word would be either sapience or sentience, two similar but importantly different words when talking about questions of humanity that are sometimes confused. We do. We say sentient beings all the time. This is a common phrase. It's a common phrase as science communicators. It's a common phrase, especially in like sci-fi writing. Right, you guys mm-hmm. come across oh, that sure. all that we always talk about sentient aliens. But Star apparently, Trek all day long. yeah. But apparently, we shouldn't be saying sentient when we use that word. We should probably be saying sapient. So let's talk about Whoa. the difference between these two words. For something to be sentient, it has to experience sensation. It has to per- perceive. It has to have senses. Okay, mm-hmm. it's sentient. It senses things. Um, that's what it comes from. This Latin feeling, perceiving things come in through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the mouth. Or if we're talking science fiction, some really cool new fandangled senses that we don't have. If something is sapient, then it is wise. It is thinking. It is intelligent. It is self-aware. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Sometimes the word sentient has in it consciousness or perception but or even the word thought but the idea of being intelligent of having wisdom of having knowledge and definitely being human like is reserved for the word sapient and sapient of course sounds a lot like homo sapiens because it has the exact same roots so you see a lot of these kind of grammar nerds online writing blog posts about the difference between the two the truth of the matter is we often try to use the word sentient to describe some sort of quote-unquote higher functioning that certain animals have like a sentient being would be a human being or a sentient being might be a chimpanzee but the truth is a flatworm is a sentient being because it has senses. But a flatworm is probably not, or it's definitely not a sapient being, because it's probably not self-aware. It's probably not reflecting on its place in the universe. A wise flatworm. Yes. Really, <laughs> yeah. But there is, you know, there's a blurry line in between. And of course, we talk about this all the time. Language is really what you make of it. And it is definitely not uncommon for people to use the word sentient when they're talking about a a thinking being. But it's not as descriptive. It's just not saying as much as the word sapient. And apparently a lot of grammar bloggers are really annoyed about that. And this was brought to my attention, thank you, by Gavin in Australia. So if we look at the roots of both of these words, they're both, you know, Latin, ultimately, and they are very similar to what we would think, right? When we talk about something being sentient or having sentience, it is capable of feeling. Sentier really meant to feel. So all of these words like sense come from that, our senses. Sometimes uh, we can 
utilize that then because we, we connect sensation and cognition together. So you will hear people talking about it meaning consci- uh, conscious, but that word is a really loaded word, conscious. There are all sorts of levels of consciousness, um, and maybe that'll be another what's the word soon. But sapient comes from the the words that uh, the root words that mean to be wise or to perceive or to remark. And you can even look at sapience, um, which is a little bit older. Is that older? Let me see. Yeah, it's older than sapient. So the, the noun form actually is older. And it actually, um, the Latin sapientia means uh intelligence, wisdom, and even good taste. So that's where things get a little bit confusing, too, because sometimes people will um, literally utilize or translate things like taste the way that it's used here. It doesn't mean taste on your tongue. It means discernment. One Mm, that is capable of discerning, one that is capable of having wisdom, um, having self-awareness is a sapient being, but one that simply experiences life through its senses, one that has an umwelt, is a sentient being. All beings are sentient in some way or another, all animals at least, and many plants and, you know, a lot of fungus and even some bacteria. You know, they have ways that they can sense their surroundings, whether it's chemoception or um, even something super simple like that. So keep those things it's, it's, in mind. It's almost like – since I mean everything is sentient to mm-hmm. a certain degree. It's almost like you're, you're, it's, it's almost meaningless then uh, to say something is sentient because what, what actually isn't sentient? What is know, alive like, but rock. not sentient? Yeah, a rock. <laughs> oh, what's well, alive right, but no, not sentient? Alive, yeah. That's hard, right? right? Because I do think that in the more po- poetic term or the way that probably a lot of science fiction authors will use the word is like are they actively perceiving or are they passively perceiving? There's nothing in the definition that defines that. Yeah. But I do think that there's kind of a line that a lot of people draw on the sand like a sponge might not – they might not consider a sponge or a leaf to be a sentient being, but an organism that experiences some sort of sensation Qualia. and then reacts to it. Yeah. Also, we run into trouble with the term artificial intelligence. Mm, yeah. Right? Because people use that term to you know colloquially to mean a self-aware machine, but it's used in the industry – to, to mean something very different, yes. you know, not self-aware, artificially intelligent, just a, a system that has, you know, that can do certain processes, you know. Yeah, sufficiently advanced to distinguish it from, you know, regular computing. Yeah, it's just it's just a method of computing. You know, mm-hmm. there's AI in video games. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not self-aware AI. So we always have to qualify, you know, self-aware right. AI versus just regular AI. Ex- or expert system. Or, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I don't I don't think we've quite evolved the language to really refer to all these things in a way that is seamless, you know, with the colloquial uses of these terms. Yeah, and also and, they're very um they have fuzzy edges around them. Yeah. Neither of these, from what I gathered, are, I don't know how you'd put it, like official kind of science words. They're not technical terminology. Yeah. You don't usually, you hear them used sometimes, and they're even used in science writing, but they're used as more of a descriptive, um, because usually we're talking about things that are a bit more specific. And if the field here is that, you know, researchers are looking at flatworms and seeing how they react to stimuli and things like that, they're they're not going to be discussing it in terms of it being sentient. They're going to be discussing it in much more specific terminology. All right. Thanks, Kara. Mm -hmm. So the first news item is a little dark, literally and figuratively. Hmm. Have you guys heard of Black Salve? Yes. Oh, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, What's going yeah, on now? We, what are they making a talk out of it, it, I think? Yeah, right. <laughs> it, this is a, yeah, I think we've talked about it before. This is a type of snake oil. It's, it's basically a caustic substance 
that you, you're meant to put on lesions, even cancer, and it uh, burns it away. But you know there are different levels of claims that are made for it. Some gurus will claim that it draws out you know the cancer. They so it's used as an escharotic, meaning like a caustic substance, but also as a drawing agent. But the the notion that it's drawing any disease out is is pure nonsense. That's the or just the cancer part. cells as opposed to the healthy cells. One of the claims made for it is that it yeah it only kills cancer cells. It and it doesn't harm healthy cells, which is nonsense. It's like putting acid on it. You know, acid doesn't know if something is cancerous or not. It just yeah. is going to bur- it's going to eat away at any flesh that it comes into contact with. So sorry if I missed it, but what does it actually draw out? Like in nothing. It, oh, so it's not actually good for anything. No, it's good for nothing. Okay, it's nothing. Cool. It's, it's just <laughs> just old timey snake oil that is still around. Gotcha. And the reason why I'm bringing it up, unfortunately, there was a, a case in in Australia of a woman who died under the ministrations of a cancer quack who was treating her with black salve, among other things, apparently also um, laetrile, you know, calling it vitamin B17. But nope, it's not, it's not a vitamin. It's, it's a failed cancer drug. So it's, what's, the story, I mean, it's sad and fascinating from a skeptical point of view. This is a woman who was a nurse who was, you know, clearly had a, uh, who was educated and had a medical background and was diagnosed at around age 50 with ovarian cancer, which of course is a very serious form of cancer and is often fatal even when properly treated. She was all set to get the standard treatment, you know, surgery and chemotherapy when she was told about this guy, Dennis Wayne Jensen, who claims to be able to cure people of cancer using black salve and other treatments. And she fell for it, you know, completely. Mm. Wow. She ended up getting treated uh, over a period of time with the black salve. And he was rubbing it on her abdomen. And all it was really doing was destroying her skin. Oh, my gosh. Her her partner described it uh, this way. Literally above her pubic bone, all across her abdomen, almost up to her ribcage, she was raw, mutilated, bubbling flesh. Oh, oh God. so sad. And, of course, it was doing nothing for the ovarian cancer, which is deep. You so know. now she has but all this internal pain and all this superficial, like, external pain. Well, now she's, she's dead. Yeah, yeah but like she, the whole time she she's dying. Oh, she she's died yeah. from it, in Steve, pain. or she died from her— From not treating her cancer. It's hard to say. You know, it's one of those things where they were both contributing. So she just—she got progressively ill under the ministrations of Jensen, who was reassuring her the whole time, this is you getting better, you're getting better, the cancer's almost gone, you know, we're drawing it out. <laughs> wow. One of the things that is a hallmark of— alternative medicine quackery is that everything is a good sign no matter what it is it's a good sign and also this idea that everything that can potentially make you sick is a toxin that you need to draw like cancer is your own body cells yeah like you don't want to draw out cancer that that would just make it spread if you were even doing that if there was a cancer magnet you would not want to drag it across your body like it's just a it's 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 missing the fundamental nature of how cancer works. Right. It's, just a, it's applying pre-scientific, very simplistic notions to a very complicated disease. Yeah. yeah but So the question here is, there's a few questions that come up from this. One is, how can somebody who is a healthcare provider and who is educated fall for this? And we know the answer to that. I mean, that's we've seen this before. That No matter who you are, when you're facing death and you're facing a desperate situation – 
uh, then you're not necessarily in a rational frame of mind. And if somebody is offering you an escape hatch, no matter how irrational it may sound, it's just way too tempting. Some people are going to fall for it. Uh, and nobody could talk her out of this. You know, even as she was dying and destroying her skin and the cancer was progressing untreated, she just doubled and tripled down on this decision that she made. The other thing that it brings up is the sorry state of regulation. This is in Australia, which actually has, in my opinion, better regulation of this sort of thing than the United States. But even there, you essentially have somebody who's not a physician, who doesn't know what they're doing, who's using fake treatments, which you know don't work, that are in fact hard, directly harmful, making completely unfair, unsubstantiated claims, you know, to be able to cure cancer, and essentially presiding over the treatment of someone in what would be gross medical negligence. If this, if an MD did this, now it's malpractice. They would be sued into oblivion. This is gross medical negligence. But somehow, you know, this alternative medicine narrative has gotten to the point where people think this is somehow okay, that this is just all healthcare freedom, Right. Oh, people should. But wait, this guy's going to prison, right? No. At all? Not at all. Oh, my God. So. There's not even going to be a civil suit? He is being investigated, and the the Australian Health Complaints Commissioner suspended. They told him, don't practice while we are undergoing the investigation. He pushed back and said, you don't have the authority to tell me not to practice. Mm -hmm. And they said, "Mm, yes, we do. Don't do it. But that's it. All he's gotten so far is just put your practice on pause while we conduct an investigation. Yeah, but also because he's not a doctor, there's no clear-cut definition of what practicing is. Well, there used to be. I mean, the idea of practicing medicine without a license used to be fairly clear, but mm -hmm. that line has been obliterated. It's not fuzzy anymore. It's been obliterated. He's making specific claims that he's charging for. He has to be liable. Well, okay. So that's that's one loophole is that he doesn't charge for the treatment, Uh but he does strongly suggest that you make a donation to him. No, that can't fly. Sorry. But that's that's the the loophole they carved Mm -hmm. out for themselves. Again, it's crazy. And then in his response is completely predictable. So when confronted with this negative outcome, he said that he insists that it works, you know, that he he offers anecdotes, you know, that it works. And he said, they don't want black salve on the market because it cures cancer. The oldest trope out there. Big big pharma, conspiracy, that's the narrative. Uh, And so the, the alternative medicine world it is a different universe, you know, where they have their own narrative. And in their world, it's all about freedom. Anything works if people say it works. The reason why this black caustic tar is good for you is because it's natural, right? Mm-hmm. Chemotherapy, oh, that's poison. Chemotherapy is pretty poison. This, however, is natural. So even though it burns a hole in your face or wherever you apply it, oh, yeah. that's okay because it's all natural. That's the narrative. And this guy, I don't know if he believes it for a second, but they just – they play those cards. Anyone who disagrees with them is a shill. Mm-hmm. Everything they do works because it's natural. They're against all regulation because of freedom. And the extent to which they have sold, they have marketed that narrative you know, is extreme. And, and of course, it's snowballed because they make money from selling that narrative and they use that money to promote the narrative. And everybody who should be calling bullshit on it has essentially failed, right? The media eat it up because it's a unusual story. Academia has looked the other way, basically. Yeah, right. They just think, oh, this is just sort of benign, touchy-feely stuff on the fringe. We could comfortably ignore this. 
right, maybe 50 years ago. It's not the world we're living in today. Yeah. Uh, the government regulations, nope, they, they have no idea what's going on. They've totally sold out. And so the public is left twisting in the wind. The only one, obviously, the only group I feel calling them out on this are the skeptics, you know, the science-based medicine advocates. And we get dismissed as shills. Mm-hmm. I literally, I literally get called a farmer shill on a weekly basis or thereabouts. Yeah, it's just the go-to. Oh, I read, I, I came across your horrible science-based medicine website. What are you a shill for big pharma? That's it. That's immediately what they say, almost a hundred percent of the time. Uh, even though it's, they have no reason to think that, and it's demonstrably not true. But that's it. That's the narrative. And they're certain. Like, I'm sure you're, they, they say it with certainty, not a question. I'm sure you're being paid off by Big Pharma. Really? I can't, uh, here in the United States, I get it's different in Australia. I'm, I'm a tax preparer. I, I cannot do a tax preparation for free and then go around and say, by the way, same person, make a donation to me. IRS will not let me do that. I'd be surprised if all the agencies in Australia think yeah. that that's copacetic and they're going to let him really get away with that. Yeah, like I'll sometimes they're around. Sometimes they're around about. It's unfortunate that the obvious reason that this guy should be in prison might not be the reason that he goes to prison. But sometimes there are other ways to bring mm-hmm. this kind of thing to justice, and it's often financial yeah. financial ways to do it, or mm-hmm. they've been cheating the books. Some some other. You're right, Kara. Some other thing that brings them down. The Capone. Yeah, because I mean, he's a charlatan, obviously. So there's no reason to believe that he's like totally been by the book in every other aspect of his life. Probably not. (laughs) But the con artists have won. They have basically won. You know, unfortunately, that is the situation. We are working very hard to push back and we are making some gains. Like in Australia, there have been some, there has been a lot of progress. But we also had a huge setback in the US recently. Um, Congress is passing the right to try, federal right to try law. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know we've talked about this, I think, a little bit. A right to try law, again, it's based on, it's packaged as healthcare freedom. It's like people should have the right to try experimental treatments. But basically, it's just a license to practice quackery. That's all it is. It's just, okay, you you can practice quackery and without regulation as long as you say that you're doing it as an experimental treatment. Yeah, because for all intents and purposes, people do have the right to take experimental treatments once they've shown that they have enough effectiveness and that person is sick enough that it's more ethical to give them the drug than not. That's already in practice, yeah, right? There is, there absolutely, there is an elaborate thoughtful, careful system so that we can provide experimental treatments to subjects and protect their rights, protect, you know, their their ethics Mm -hmm. and also do good science. This right to try law throws all of that out. There's no protection. Basically all it's doing is removing all the protections that we put into place to protect people from experimental treatments. In in the guise of their freedom, yes, you are now free to be exploited. Yeah. This is what we had the Nuremberg trials over. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. It's terrible. And the and the American politicians have utterly fallen for it because they have no idea what they're talking about when it comes to this issue. All right, let's let's turn to a bit of a funner topic. <laughs> funner. More funner. <laughs> More funner, right, Jay? You're gonna give us an update on the EM drive. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, this is big. This is all over the news. I don't even know what my reaction was. I mean, I I, I wasn't surprised, but anyway, let's get into this. So <laughs> Space flight is it's incredibly expensive, and it requires you know a huge amount of fuel just to get something into outer space. So of course, you know space agencies like NASA want to develop other types of propulsion. 
right? So this is why NASA's Eagle Works laboratories have been testing an engine, which you know what the name of it is, the AM drive, uh, and that at first glance might seem like a complete waste of time and money. Um, I, I, I think we're going to figure that out right here and right now. So you know what it is, the EM drive that we talked about a year and a half ago, 2016, is back in the news. And really quick, if you don't know what it is, it's basically a drive that is supposed to or supposedly produces thrust by bouncing microwaves inside of a cone-shaped cavity with no other fuel requirements. All right, so just one terminology thing, Jay. So the thing is, most of the rockets that we use, the fuel is the propellant. Right. Right? But really, those are two different things. So when we like mix hydrogen and oxygen and then throw the you know the fire out the bottom of the rocket, the fuel becomes the propellant. But if you have like an ion drive, what's providing the energy is not the propellant. It's you're accelerating something else and throwing out that out the back. So this isn't a drive that doesn't require energy. It must require some fuel, meaning it requires – it has to be operated in some way. But it's a propellantless drive. Right. It's not throwing anything out the back. And that, you know, violates the laws of physics. That's why it's so controversial. A little bit, yeah. yeah. A little bit. And that, that's why this National Geographic quote that it was discussing the EM drive, this – I have to say this is my favorite thing that I read about this. They said, it would be a bit like Han Solo flying the Millennium Falcon just by headbutting the dashboard. And if you think that sounds controversial, you're right. <laughs> so, <laughs> okay. yeah. so nice. like I said, back in 2016, you know, we, we found out about the EM drive and this was the result of a leaked study that covered the latest results – from a NASA test on the on the drive. So mo- most likely due from this leak, scientists in Germany decided, hey, we're going to build our own EM drive. And they did that. They did this at the Inst- Institute of Aerospace and Engineering to see if they can simulate the results that NASA found. And they call the project the Space Drive Project. You know, if I had drums right now, I'd do a little drum roll. The results are, and this is another quote, uh, that... The thrust is not coming from the EM drive, but from some electromagnetic interaction. Mm -hmm. So they tested the drive in a vacuum chamber where they were able to control lots of different things that could affect it, like thermal fluctuations, vibrations, resonances, anything that would have an effect on thrust they were able to control for, except they were not able to shield shield the, the drive itself from the Earth's magnetic field. So here's the deal. When they could confirm that no microwaves were being emitted inside of the cone, which is how it's supposed to work. Now, just make sure you understand what I'm saying. They confirmed that no microwaves were being emitted by their machine. The drive was still producing thrust with the essentially the thing that makes it go turned off. So now, of course, according mm-hmm. to NASA's findings, no thrust should have been detected once the microwave emitter was turned off. So the team concluded that the Earth's magnetic field was somehow interacting with the power cables found inside the EM drive chamber, and this interaction is what they strongly suspected is the actual source of the the minuscule thrust that they were able to to detect. So they then concluded that they need to shield it against, they need to shield the interior of the EM drive um, against the the Earth's magnetic field. And in order for them to do this, they have to use something called, um, you know, is it MU metals or MU metals or MU metals? It's MU. MU Mu metal. MU Mu metals. Yeah. That's a Greek sign, a Greek it, yeah. oh, letter, right? Yeah. Moo. So, uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> like there's a Y in between, but there's not. <laughs> yeah. So, Eagle Works, uh, NASA's Eagle Works lab did not shield 
their their dairy EM drive. Ha ha. They didn't shield the drive in this way. And so now we're really all thinking that this is the result of Earth's magnetism. Of course. Interesting. Like that's like and of course when you're talking about really small signals, that's it's common to shield in mu metal. I don't understand why they wouldn't do that. Well that just wasn't what the experiment they were doing. They wanted to uh. see what the source of the extra what what the the tiny amount of measured thrust was so they just eliminated things one by one and when they when they did that they they eliminated vibration heat this yeah. and that and when they did that they had some thrust left over and the only thing they hadn't eliminated was interactions with the earth's magnetic field so they figured that's what it must be so now they want to do a follow up experiment because there's always a follow up experiment right where they do shield it gotcha. to confirm that that is the cause they also – it was a low-power test. So again, true believers could say, well, it was running at low power. If they ran it at higher power, then the real thrust would have emerged. Yeah, just ramp it up. <laughs> just ramp it up, yeah. I mean, so, but go this ahead. Is- to, to double-check, why not? Just to make sure because it's such an oddball thing. But it seems to be busted now. There's something kind of cool about the fact that it's like utilizing the Earth's magnetic field. I kind of dig on that. I don't know if that yeah. means anything, but there's something kind of cool can about you take that. Anything we can do yeah, with that? Can we, har- can we somehow harness that into something? I don't know. We already can. We already can <laughs> interact with magnetic fields. There's nothing new. Yeah, not- I guess you can't like make a spaceship go from but it. We want to propel things out <laughs> into space with it. Damn it. <laughs> yeah, but the Earth's magnetic field doesn't go that far out into space. Well, just here's the thing. Uh, that's that's an interesting and important point, Steve. Yeah, but you just need <laughs> yes. to get going. The rest takes. And if we itself. and if we wanted to do that, this wouldn't be the design that we would use. This is an incidental, teeny tiny force that we're coming here, not something designed to maximize the interaction with the Earth's magnetic field. But this is what we always see when you have these devices where the claim is made that it's violating what we think, you know, are the laws of physics. No, it's what not. What it turns out <laughs> to be is that there's a mistake. There's an error. There's an extraneous yeah. source of the tiny energy or thrust or whatever. And people are confusing this tiny error as a new phenomenon. And then they claim and all, if we increase the power or the size or whatever, this could do amazing things. But of course, it never does because the tiny errors don't scale up, uh, and there's no real effect there to scale up. If your if your results wind up violating the laws of physics, you've made a mistake. Something yeah. or you've missed something. Mm-hmm. That's that's right. it. Yeah, unless you like really found a new type of physics, and then you're able to devise an experiment to try to yeah. experimentally show it. But like, you're not yeah, going to stumble on something right. like that. Based on this experiment, based on yeah. your experiment, on your pet project. Right. That's yeah. just, it's not how it works. But there's always these legions of true believers sure. who are like, no, but look, there's this tiny amount of thrust in this experiment. You can't explain that. Therefore, it's real. That's right. This is a real mm-hmm. thing. And by the and way, here's my perpetual how wonderful this would be. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what it, this is. This is the... This is a perpetual motion machine. That's exactly what this is. It's the same type of, of phenomenon. Propellantless thrust is the equivalent of uh, a free energy machine. You know, it's the same thing. It's, it's defies the laws of physics, and it's the every device so far has just been based on an erroneous source of energy that that wasn't properly accounted for or fraud yeah or sometimes just yeah fraud just seeking investors (laughs) or whatever right not surprising but it's also not the end of the story because they didn't you know dot every i and cross every t so the true believers could still hang in there all right evan i understand scientists are still looking for the loch ness monster oh come on I want to give a hat tip to sgu listener and friend of the sgu paleontologist donald prothero as he first made me aware of this news 
story today. Now, Reuters ran an article about a global team of researchers getting ready in just a few weeks to head to Loch Ness, and this is according to their headlines, to perform a DNA search for the Loch Ness Monster. Now, I hate to pick on Reuters, but I'm going to a little bit here. Here is, I'm just going to read to you their very first paragraph, okay? A global team of scientists plans to scour the icy depths of Loch Ness next month using environmental DNA in an experiment that may discover whether Scotland's fabled monster really does or did exist. So if you're going to describe something as accurately as fabled as the Loch Ness Monster is, you can't in the same sentence be asking if it really exists or not. I'm sorry. But they yeah, did. Yeah, you so. can report on the fact that scientists are going to do this. But you don't have to be like, are they going to find out if it's real? But anyways, journalism aside, here's the crux of the story, and it's about the eDNA sampling. So what is eDNA? The E, of course, stands for environmental. So environmental DNA is a surveillance tool used to monitor for the genetic presence of an aquatic species. For example, here in America, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is currently using eDNA to monitor for the genetic presence of bighead carp and silver carp, which are two species of Asian carp, an invasive species in America and elsewhere. And by sampling the waters that could potentially be invaded by these species, the detection of their DNA can indicate the potential presence of the fish itself. But you can do it in other substrates, too. eDNA can be collected from, like, soil, too. Yes, that's correct. And it's cool. Like, they can do, like, cool kind of wildlife forensics with it. Yeah, oh, you can learn a lot, a ton mm -hmm. of information. I mean, and, you know, it... So what is the trace DNA they're, they're trying to detect? What are they looking for? Whenever a creature moves through its environment, such as water, soil, what have you, it will leave behind tiny fragments of its DNA. It could be skin. It could be scales. It could be feather, furs, and of course, feces, feces yeah. and urine. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the telltale signs of any species. And according to the team spokesman, his name is Professor Neil Gemmel. He's from the University of Otago in New Zealand. He says that this DNA can be captured, sequenced, and then used to identify that creature by comparing the sequence obtained to large databases of known genetic sequences from hundreds of thousands of different organisms. Now, he says while the prospect of looking for evidence of the Loch Ness Monster is the hook to the project, there's an extraordinary amount of new knowledge that we will gain from the work about organisms that inhabit Loch Ness. So essentially what's happening is here is that they're doing this project that, yes, they're, they're probably going to find some very interesting and fascinating things in their own right from the sampling that they're going to be getting. I don't necessarily really think that they're looking for the Loch Ness Monster here. They're not. <laughs> no, I agree. Not. I think it's totally incidental. They're basically doing an eDNA survey of Loch Ness to, to see about invasive species and to get a snapshot of the ecology because the eDNA only hangs around in water for days to a couple weeks. So you're only going to see like what's there now, basically. And talking about NA, who knows? Maybe we'll find DNA from Loch Ness. Totally totally gratuitous that's just yeah. as it that's the that's the hook for the journalists yeah it's the market nothing right. more this is not what the study really is they're just doing an eDNA survey of Loch Ness which is perfectly cool and legitimate science the whole eDNA angle is the real story here because think about it we could you could take some samples of water and they could amplify the even the tiniest bits of DNA in there so much that they could then compare that to this massively growing database of DNA, you know, catalog, you know, from other species, and they could match it. They could say, oh, yeah, these are the 300 species living in that lake. That's how awesome is That's that? That's it. Right. Identify what is really there. 
Yeah. And find new things that un, undiscovered, which, yes, which is great. That's the, that's a really cool thing. They've done this. They've done similar tests in, in, in the oceans. They go to various spots in various uh, parts of different oceans and they're like, holy crap, we never found, you know, what's this bacteria genome? Never seen, there's nothing like that in our database. So, yeah. yeah. Do you think that, uh, here's my question I have for you guys. Do you think it's incumbent upon yes. the team of professors, <laughs> thank you, Bob, to do a little bit better job in sort of disclosing sort of what they're a really doing here and b to also downplay the Loch Ness monster angle of all this. I get that they want to give their attention work, but are they kind of using the celebrity of the fable to bring attention to their work? Is that is, yes? Is, well, is, it also depends. Is that a bad like, thing? Where did this yeah. come from? Is it from a press release? Like, what's the core source of information? Because, like, did Reuters was Reuters the first outlet that talked about Nessie? The National Geographic did too. Yeah. So the question so I think is, they're bo- I think they're getting it from a press release. Yeah. If the if the press release came from the scientists, usually it actually doesn't come from the scientists. It comes from the PIO at the university. Like ultimately, the buck stops with somebody. But I don't know if it's it, it is the scientist's job when a journalist calls them to interview them to say, mm-hmm. guys, we're not looking for the Loch Ness monster. But they have no control of, over whether or not the journalist publishes that. That's right. They so, may have actually said it and they may have gotten. Cut yeah. Out. So I really think that it's the PIO, the public information officer or whoever ultimately wrote the press release that um, ended up getting picked up everywhere. If the press release was like, is the Loch Ness Monster real? For we, Once and for all, our scientists are going to find out through this cool thing called eDNA. Like, then that's really, you know, irresponsible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. Uh, all right. Thanks, Evan. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, KiwiCo. This company just keeps getting better. They have these awesome hands-on projects that are specifically made for kids in a certain age range. And the projects teach them about science and technology and engineering and art and make math fun. I mean, this is really something every parent should do with their children. I did it with my, my both of my kids. I have a five-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old, and, a and they, they have projects that were specifically designed for their age. And they both are still playing with them, and it's been over a week. Yeah, my d- daughter built an external speaker, like for, for a phone or a portable device. And she's like, Dad, where's my next box? <laughs> you know, that's, uh, up. So she's craving KiwiCo crates. Is that what you're saying? Nice alliteration, Bob. Thank you, Jay. KiwiCo delivers convenience. That means absolutely everything is needed in the box to build the project for the kids and for some adults. And no extra trips to the craft store to get extra stuff. And KiwiCo is offering you, listeners of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their projects for kids, visit KiwiCo.com slash Skeptics. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics to try KiwiCo for free. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Kara, you're, yeah, you're going to tell us about a real living, I wouldn't say monster, but it, it's a, the largest salamanders on the planet. That's yeah, pretty cool. Yeah, they're cool. really cool. But unfortunately, wah, wah, what do you think is happening to them? Uh-oh. They're endangered. Yeah, they're Uh-oh. super threatened. So, and you want to know why? For some not good reasons that I think we're all going to get grumpy about. So, um, it is called the Chinese giant salamander. Um, and actually, in in the Chinese language, its name translates to, or its common name translates to infant fish. Not because it is small. It is not small. It is huge. But because it has these vocalizations that make it sound like a baby crying. It's a bit weird. Oh. But it's enormous. Like the average adult Chinese salamander is almost four feet in length. What? And yeah, yeah it weighs 
weighs like about 60 pounds. Uh, the largest one that's ever been measured was 5.9 feet in length and weighed 110 pounds. Oh, boy. Guys, that's bigger than me. <laughs> <laughs> That's so crazy. So um, yeah, these are these are huge. They're really cute, but kind of gross looking, but also really cute. But unfortunately, they have a very long and very interesting storied history. Now, there's an article that came out this week, actually, just a couple of days ago in Current Biology um, called Imminent Extinction in the Wild of the World's Largest Amphibian. So yeah, that actually sounds um, horrible. Uh, and it's really about a wildlife survey that came up with quite depressing results. But I think in order to understand the depressing results of this survey, we need to er, rewind and understand a little bit more about the plight of the Chinese giant salamander, which, as we'll get to, is likely not even a single species, but possibly five species, maybe even up to eight different species, which complicates things a lot. So here's the, the, like, the weird kind of bizarre part of the story that's just fascinating to learn about. This salamander is native to China, but because it cries like a baby and they called it the infant fish, people thought that eating it would bring them bad luck. Um, So it was never really considered an important part of Chinese diet or Chinese medicine up until there was a large influx of immigrants from the South that were like, yeah, screw that. We want to eat it anyway, and we want to turn it into all sorts of traditional Chinese medicine. And... They started building these salamander farms and harvesting these salamanders in, like, massive numbers. So it was about 2004 when this big farm system started happening. But the crazy thing about it is that it was sort of a massive Ponzi scheme. So get this. Yeah, this is so weird. So the government was like, yeah, sure, let's breed these salamanders. People are making money. Um, It's helping improve, you know, the state of poverty in certain rural areas. They gave out licenses. Some farms still did it even if they didn't have licenses. And by 2011, the estimation is that there were 2.6 million salamanders across all these farms in China. But only 3% of the animals that were raised by the farms were actually sold to restaurants. The rest were sold to other farms to seed their populations. So you ended up with this weird pyramid scheme where farms were selling salamanders to other farms, raising the price every single time. And so by the end of it, at at its very peak before the bubble, like the actual salamander bubble burst, a two-kilogram individual was worth $1,500. Isn't that insane? And so what ends up happening, of course, in impoverished areas where there's a lot of pressure and where people can't afford it, they start capturing these from the wild. And that's when things got really bad. So they're trading these salamanders across all the different places in China where they've lived. Some of them lived in the north. Some of them lived in the south. They populated these different river systems. And it turns out that based on some of this new information, we're learning that these salamanders were probably different species because they're super, super old. Okay, they're from about 170 million years ago um, is when they first separated from sort of their common ancestor. So this is before Stegosaurus, right? This is before flowers. This is before birds. They're very old. And over probably the last like five to 10 million years, they have become genetically distinct in these different river systems and these different ecologies. So there's been a long enough time that they've evolved um, certain 
traits that make them genetically distinct from one another. But none of the farmers cared about this. And of course, then there was this massive governmental system put in place where they were like, the numbers in the wild are decimated. Farmers need to start releasing their salamanders back into the wild. But they were all crossbred at this point. You know, you had southern salamanders that needed to be in a subtropical area being released in the north and vice versa. And now when they go to find these salamanders in the wild, and that's what this paper, it's about a, a massive um, project to to do an environmental survey to figure out how many of these salamanders are living out there in the wild. They're finding that they're just not there. And the ones that are there are really not doing well. So, you know, there were surveys that were conducted even a decade ago where you could search for like an hour and you'd probably find like a um, distant cousin of the Chinese giant salamander, the Japanese giant salamander. But now, like, let me see, Cunningham, who's the lead author on the paper. No, he's one. Uh, yeah, he's the final author. Andrew Cunningham from the um, Zoological Society of London. He says that his team of 80 people took 16 weeks just to find a single individual. And they went into all these places where the salamanders have historically thrived. And after interviewing 2,800 people, the vast majority of them said they haven't seen one um, for over 10 years. So basically, this is now a big conundrum that that we're seeing. We're seeing that these uh, salamanders not doing well. We're seeing that the ones that they did find, which is like a really small, small number, are like inbred. They're usually kind of sick because they weren't bred uh properly or they got um, illnesses from being in captivity previously. Um, many of them can't produce viable offspring because, of course, they're breeding different species with one another. Nobody was really aware of that because nobody really knew that they were genetically distinct. They looked similar. So they released a bunch of mules into the wild. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then these mules are mating and, of course, not making any babies. And, of course, this matters for two really important reasons. One is that apparently this um, salamander, because it's so big, big, big animals like this usually have top predator status. And this one is no different. It's a top predator in a lot of the freshwater ecosystems in China. And, of course, China is having a hard time having enough fresh water. And so when the biodiversity is dramatically changed like this, you never know what's going to happen, but it's probably not going to be good. Right. You're going to get weird algae blooms. You're going to get all sorts of um, animals that might, you know, cause toxins to be released in the water to like be overproducing. Like there, there's a balance there and that balance there occurs for a reason. But the second reason that this is really important is because, as you guys probably remember, when we look at what we call the quote unquote sixth extinction, which, you know, scientists argue about how it, how imminent the danger is. Are we actually in it right now? Has it already happened? What's the rate? They can calculate extinction rates. There's a background rate of extinction, which happens to all organisms at all times. And then there's a rate for an individual organism and they um, compare them to one another. Amphibians across the globe are going extinct at something like 30,000 times the background rate. I mean, it's it's just they're so threatened. There are 7,000 known species of amphibians in the world. About a third of them are threatened. Half of them are in decline. There's a really bad fungus that's killing a lot of frogs. Obviously, there's climate change, habitat loss, all these things. And so when you've got this apex like massive salamander in China, and everybody used to think that China was impervious to this um, this ha this amphibian decline. And this is just, a, I think, a really good systematic study that shows not only are they not impervious, they're dealing with it on a massive and very important scale. 
So I don't know. This is like a really interesting story to me because it's got intrigue. It's got it's got a salamander Ponzi scheme. But then also in the end of it, what we're left with is, again, a very sad situation where a beautiful, um, charismatic animal has been um, basically completely or almost completely wiped out because people didn't want to stop eating them and they didn't want to stop making them into Chinese medicine. I agree with that, Kara, but it seems like it was mainly – I mean, the main value in them was the bubble. Was the, oh, yeah, it was they, the bubble. They were valuable because people thought they were valuable. Yeah, it's insane. It's like, oh, everybody's making so much money farming salamanders. I want to get in on that. So they'd buy yeah. seed salamanders, basically. Yeah. And But Gee. only 3% and they of sell- them were being sold. Right. <laughs> or to right, restaurants, right. at least. It's so banana. And then, of course, when the bubble burst, because they're like, I can't afford this anymore, the entire industry collapsed about two years ago. And it was easier for people to then say, okay, the government's been telling me to release a certain number of my animals. I'm just going to release them en masse. So not only are there thousands of salamanders running around out there, A, they can't find them because they're probably dying too quickly. And the ones that they do find are either super sick or super inbred. Yeah, the whole thing's a cluster. Mm-hmm. It's sad. All right. Thanks, Kara. Jay, you got to get us caught up on Who's That Noisy? All right. Noise. So I couldn't do it last week because a tornado came. That was the noisy, the tornado. <laughs> last week, I played this noisy. Okay, so uh, what is that? Uh, is it an ant chewing on a leaf? Well, it's periodic, so it's something going around and around or going yeah, up that's and right. down. Yeah, it does sound regu- like a regular period. Mm. But it also has an insecty, like that creepy crawly sound of an insect crawling on something. Yeah, it does. It has that type of sound. Somebody said, uh, Dan B said, that's what it sounds like. Uh, that's the sound your maggot burger would be making. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, see that? Bugs. Yeah. Uh, that's not correct, though, Dan. About 100 people said... That And Rich Regalado said it first. Um, he said that this noisy sounds like the stylus at the end of a vinyl record, which I thought was a very uh, a good guess, but not correct. So a lot of people, about 100 people just sighed and said, oh, I was wrong. <laughs> uh, a notable guess was somebody said this was a, a scorpion or maybe a centipede eating um, its freshly caught prey. Oh, I like how you said centipede. Yeah, yes. that's, nope. that's one write, for the books, Kara. Write that down. Yeah, I'm going to write that down. A centipede. Oh, a fizzersurst. What was it? An astrophysicist. So, what is this? This is crazy. Uh, so, Maria Stevens wrote in, and this is what she wrote to me when she sent me the noise. She said, if you are ever scraping the bottom of the barrel for a noise, here's one. I don't think so, Maria. I love this noisy. No, it's not the sound of scraping the bottom of a barrel. It's just a sound that reminds me of it, of snapping shrimp. My knees have made these noises forever. Her knees. knees. In this recording, I am simply lying on my back, bending and straightening my legs. Yeah, her knees are popping. Yeah, I think it's the cartilage or her meniscus. One of my hips kind of does that. My ankle. I have an ankle that I can do that with. (laughs) So listen. Now, I said I said two weeks ago <laughs> that this may be the first time a noisy of this class was done. So this is a human noise. All right. So I have a new noisy this week. This noisy was sent in by a listener named Richard Harris. And the noisy is. Hmm. 
So, if you think you know what this noisy is, or if you heard a cool noisy in the past two weeks, email me at WTN at theskepticsguide.org. There's a lot going on in that audio file. You are correct. That is a very complicated, very interesting, and also... Um, there, it does remind me of a noise from a sci-fi movie, which I will tell you next week. Okay. Mm-hmm. Just reminds Sounds me good. of like when I leave my microphone open on accident and I'm just picking up a bunch of environmental noise. Stuff. Yeah. Like when I'm recording out in the, in, in the wild. Wild in sound. The, right. Yeah, wild, wild sound. Wild sound. Wild sounds back here. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Jay. All right, so for email this week, we've got a few responses to the discussion of the alien octopuses. Uh, a few people were curious about why we were as negative as we appear to be about the underlying concept of panspermia. Said so even if I don't think that you know an octopus is an alien, isn't is panspermia total nonsense, or is there any legitimacy to it? And some people thought we were being too negative. Oh, so. Well, but that's not what the story was about. I will give you that. Like, I actually, I think, I don't think we're being too negative. I think Pennsylvania is nonsense, but it is. Let's... But I, I, but I do want to point out that I felt like the story was not about that. The people who wrote the article happened to be trying to further their panspermia kind of views, um, and so that's basically what we did. We discounted it. But yeah, but the article was a hundred percent about promoting panspermia. Exactly. But th- what we were talking about was the. The octopus, they were using panspermia as a kind of, what would you call it, a mechanism by which uh, the octopus specifically, like it's one thing if you're talking about abiogenesis, I still think it's bullshit, but that's a wholly different conversation, um, panspermia versus abiogenesis. But what we were talking about was, yeah, octopus DNA did not come here on an asteroid. Yeah, so we'll separate these two things. <laughs> okay. Just The quick recap was the article was basically had three points to it. Mm. One is that the Cambrian explosion was too fast for evolution and therefore it was the result of alien genes being incorporated into life forms on Earth. Again, the Cambrian explosion is the rapid proliferation of multicellular life around 550 million years ago. It's also, by the way, something that a lot of creationists love to attack. I know saying. that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were making a lot. They were they were carrying water for the creationists in mm-hmm. their arguments. Uh, the second point that they were making is that that octopus cephalopods in general and the octopus in particular, different species of octopus, have a, some amazing abilities because either they incorporated alien DNA into their genome or they themselves are completely one hundred percent alien. Yeah, and those were the two kind of hypotheses, quote unquote, that we talked about. Last week, and then the third the third argument they made was that there are microfossils in meteorites that show um, alien life coming to Earth in meteorites. Right. So all three of their arguments are utter nonsense. Yeah. But it's it could be true that panspermia is a reasonable theory, even if their arguments that they're marshaling in support of it are crap. Well, that it could it, be I, true that it's reasonable, but it's not based on anything. But yeah, but it's it, it's entirely separate from this horrible paper and these <laughs> horrible arguments. I think panspermia is not a very viable theory. And the two things are actually related when you do a deep dive on panspermia, the current state of things, mm. because this are the three arguments that they were putting forward are trying to plug holes in the problems of panspermia. 
very specifically. So let me let me give a back up a little bit. So the notion of panspermia is that abiogenesis, the origin of life from non-life, is actually exceedingly rare. That's one of the premises. And it, so it may not have originated on Earth. It's possible that it's only happened one or a few times ever in our galaxy. But once life gets going, it can seed itself from solar system to solar system that there are organisms which are extremely hardy, can survive either extended cryopreservation or could actually have like an active living colony like in a pocket on a, on a comet or something. Tardigrade hypothesis, right? Yes, right. Although tardigrades, remember, are dormant when when they're mm-hmm. in harsh environments like that. But but they're still – they're dormant, but they're technically alive. Like they can be reconstituted if they – They could be reconstituted, yeah. yeah. So the purpose of panspermia as a the- as a hypothesis was to, as you mentioned, Kara, was because the thinking was that abiogenesis is hard and may be ex- extremely rare. But that's actually an unnecessary hypothesis because mm-hmm. there's no reason to think that abiogenesis doesn't happen every time the conditions are reasonably permissible for it, like on like on the early Earth. Um, so there's no reason to think that it's rare. So it's solving, in essence, a made-up non-problem. Right. But even still could be true, even despite the fact that the quote unquote reason for it is not valid. It could still be true. But here's the real problem with the theory is that it requires the existence of a lot of really hardy organisms that can survive for millions, maybe even billions of years in interstellar space. If that were true, then why aren't they everywhere? If that were true, the moon and Mars would be just fine places for them to set up shop. Why Why aren't they coating the surface of the moon? If they could survive interstellar space, they could survive on the moon or you could survive on Mars or it's under the Europa Regolith, right? or anywhere. Yeah. Well, and also, why don't we then? Because I know that some of the people who wrote in were like, you mentioned that we don't have any evidence in any meteorites on Earth and that – I don't think is a solid enough argument. And I'm like, really? Don't you think it would be important that we would have some sort of evidence? So that gets that that gets back to the absence of evidence and how conclusive is it for the evidence of absence. But if and, their argument is that it's really common. Well, that's the thing. You have yeah. to link it to that argument. You have to link it to, well, if they got here, then it's probably common. You know, if yeah. the earth were seeded almost as soon it was cool enough to be seeded. Why aren't they constantly reseeding the earth? Mm-hmm. So, and so the common, the fact that, that the seeds, these panspermious interstellar seeds would have to be both highly robust and highly common, though that problem is solved by the three alleged lines of evidence presented mm-hmm. in this paper. <laughs> because it, it, you would, you would think that that the earth would not have been seeded once at the very beginning, but why aren't we constantly reintroducing aliens yeah. into the earth biology? Well, well they're saying maybe aliens. we were. Yeah, they're saying maybe, maybe just we octopuses did that. Yeah. The, <laughs> that's the, so the, the, uh, Cambrian explosion and the octopus argument saw is addressing that point. And yeah. the third is, well, why aren't we seeing them on meteorites? They're saying, well, we are seeing them on meteorites. They're these microfossils. But that's not the problem true. is the oh microfossils. Yeah, that's fossils. It's yeah. not true. And that, that has not <laughs> held up to scientific review that yeah, these that's... are, this is just pareidolia. It's just an act of imagination looking at little it's geological, not organic. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah it's exactly. just it's just geological, not organic. Exactly. So th- there's they're marshalling three terrible arguments and lines of evidence in order to plug very real problematic holes in this in the panspermia hypothesis. So they fail to do that. Their hypothesis remains unnecessary, fringe, highly dubious, and completely lacking in any evidence. Why are they so invested in it? It doesn't mean it's wrong. It just means it's not yeah. a very good theory. And I'm not holding out anything for it. But the kernel of, I think, of legitimacy to this idea is that I do think that life can be swapped around within a solar solar system. system. Yeah. 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 I think Earth and Mars and Europa may, you know, have swapped. Enceladus. Well, Enceladus. and we, we know that, but, which is why we don't want to seed these places when we go to visit. That's why we have these intense decontamination protocols for our uncrewed missions. Yeah, yeah. But I think, yeah, interstellar travel, millions of years. I mean, that's, I just don't think that that's very plausible. I think this is, I give this an extremely low plausibility. Sure, we haven't proven it wrong completely because we haven't mm. looked, you know, we haven't surveyed everybody in the solar system. You know, we haven't really looked enough to say that we've proven it's not true but it's on life support man it's not a it's not a highly viable theory right why are they so invested in in a particular outcome as opposed to examining what the hell but that's also just not being a good scientist exactly that's just not checking yourself from a skeptical perspective and not Mm -hmm. everyone who does science is good at that i will say that again making bad arguments doesn't disprove the thing you're trying to prove with the bad arguments but there's a reason why they had to make such bad arguments because that's (laughs) all they have and also there's a reason that the predominant and prevailing view within the scientific community is abiogenesis not panspermia because there's just not as much compelling evidence for it. Well, there's not. Well, also, the the <laughs> RNA hypothesis of abiogenesis is about a million times more plausible than than panspermia. Yeah, and we've had some experiments that have shown aspects of abiogenesis to yeah. be possible. Yeah, but so it's plausible, mm-hmm. exactly. So that I that I think it's a good summary. I, I like this. I like panspermia because it does. It's on the fringe of science and pseudoscience, and it's good to explore what it really is. You know, I, I, I like it. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Lisa Mattresses. Lisa Mattresses is a direct-to-consumer online mattress brand, and the thing about this company that I love is that they're socially conscious. What they do is for every 10 mattresses that Lisa sells, they donate one to a shelter. They call it their 110 program. And what else do they do, Ev? They plant trees. Is this what I hear? Is this correct? That is correct. They plant one tree for every mattress sold and donate 1% of each employee's time to volunteer for local causes. And this is your favorite part, guys. It's got three premium foam layers, including a 5.08 centimeter foam top layer for cooling and stuff. That is also a 5.08 centimeter memory foam middle layer for other things. And then there's this six inch. See how I changed things there? Six inch density core support foam (laughs) for durability and structure. 15.24 15.24 centimeters. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so try a Lisa mattress in your own home for 100 nights free available in the US, UK, Canada, and Germany online with free shipping. This is a 100% American-made mattress shipped compressed in a box, <laughs> not not in a compressed box. Damn. <laughs> right to your door. Or try it at the Lisa Dream Gallery in Soho, New York City, and Virginia Beach, and over 80 West Elm stores nationwide. Steve, wait, whoa. Steve, for Memorial Day, you get $160 off when you go to leesa.com slash skeptics. All right. 
All right, guys, let's get back to our show. Okay, we have a great interview coming up with Jennifer Willette, so let's go to that interview now. Joining us now is Jennifer Willette. Jennifer, welcome back to The Skeptic's Guide. Oh, great. I'm so happy to be back. And Jennifer, you are a science communicator. You're the author of four books, most recently, Me, Myself, and Why, Searching for the Science of Self. Uh, and you've done a ton of stuff. Uh, but tell us what projects you're working on recently. Okay. Um, well, I mean, the recent book is not so recent. I'm actually in the process of developing the next book. <laughs> um, in fact, I just gave a TED Talk back, uh, TEDx Talk, I should say, uh, back in February about this. I don't know if you're familiar with the physics terms, phase transitions and criticality. Oh, yeah. Chaos. No, it's a little bit different than chaos. <laughs> uh -oh. Fill me uh -oh. in. How? <laughs> it's a little bit – think of uh, – what happens when water can be in different phases, when it switches from water to ice or to vapor, there's a point called a critical point or a tipping point, and uh, that's the critical phase. And you see this kind of pattern in a lot of different systems uh, in, in nature, in the world. It's kind of everywhere. It's in the brain. And so I've always been fascinated by this for years, about about this, this critical point or near criticality and how that's such a very interesting place to be. Um, it's related to complex networks. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, information transfer is, is key, close to the critical point. So you want to get as close as you can to that point without kind of being at it because it's a fairly unstable, precarious place to balance. So, for example, the stock market likes to operate near criticality. Um, the Internet likes to operate near criticality. Um, all those things uh, operate near criticality. The power grid, for example. To me, that's just a really fascinating tool for understanding how change happens. So the book that I'm kind of exploring is going to be looking at that. So how would you define criticality as it applies to the power grid, for example? Well, it's a little bit more nuanced than just a tipping point. It's basically the point where you're, you're perfectly balanced. You're literally teetering on the edge of, teetering on the edge of chaos is, is one way. Ah, chaos. I knew chaos was involved. <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> but you don't want but you wow. don't want to go into chaos. You know? It's pre-chaos. Right, right. <laughs> um, one of the things I'm writing right now uh, for Quanta is a follow-up of something I did a couple years ago on self-organized criticality in the brain. Um, the brain, of course, is a complex network. Um, with all these billions of neurons. Kara, uh, I know you're familiar with this. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, they're all talking to each other. And there's a group of neuroscientists, a growing number of researchers, um, who really believe that the brain isn't so much precisely at criticality, but it sort of hovers near criticality. And that's somehow nature has figured out how to have the optimal amount of information processing and transfer without a lot of instability. So... This is where they, you don't want to go into chaos. If you're right at criticality and you accidentally tip over and you become super critical, that's akin to, say, an epileptic seizure. I and mean, you definitely don't want that. <laughs> yeah, it is amazing how we're not constantly seizing all the time. Like, you know, how yeah. precarious neuronal function actually is. Um, and it maintains itself at criticality essentially by constant inhibition of itself. There's a constant inhibitory tone keeping, keeping that from happening. Right. So what you see at criticality, you know, in the brain are all these neuronal avalanches. Um, it's a way of kind of letting off steam and the system can kind of reset itself and build back up. The brain is an amazing thing. I mean, it, it needs to be able to adapt. It can't be too locked in because then it can't adapt to anything. And if it's too chaotic, it's epileptic and it can't function. And so it's nature's kind of figured out this great tuning mechanism to keep it like right in this sweet spot where it can function properly. 
The Goldilocks course, zone? They yeah. Have, everything's got a Goldilocks zone, yeah. And of course, mm. there's so many ways that that can go wrong. Oh, God. And we can learn so much from that kind of aberrant um, neuronal behavior. One of the, I was talking to one of the researchers. His name is John Beggs. I think he's at Indiana University. And um, I says, well, what I find interesting about this is we can learn how nature solves this problem. And maybe we can use it to solve problems in our own complex networks, like the power grid. And he went, I'm going to use that in my next grant proposal. Oh, cool. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's, That's awesome. awesome. <laughs> Do you think in the future, guys, we'll be able to tweak that with meds or something? And, uh, you know, is this something that would help people that have a problem? Well, we already can with, with right, with seizure Yeah, we already do that. What, we're what already do we... doing that with brain implants, actually. Oh, yeah, that too. There's actually, a, you know, a, I think Stanford is doing this. They have a center and there's essentially you know, 50 or 60 people, epileptic patients walking around with an electrode planted in their brain. And it essentially is a, a pacemaker for neural activity. And from what I can tell, clinically, it's been extremely successful. Wow. Yeah, well, they've also been doing that for a long time with vagus nerve stimulators. It's basically the same idea. The real limitation on that is just the technical aspect of interfacing electrodes with neurons. That's pretty much the limiting factor at this point. But you know, there's no real theoretical limit to the extent to which we could hack the brain, either magnetically or electrically. And inhibiting seizures is definitely among the low-hanging fruit because that's all you really need to do is stimulate the inhibitory tone of the brain and that could clamp down the seizure, you know? So you said vagus nerve stimulators. Is that when they shock you when you're playing poker? How does that work? <laughs> yes, He's Bob. He's excited about that one. You got it. <laughs> the wandering nerve, right? The vagal nerve. <laughs> I hate when you see yep. when you see a joke, yep. you see a joke, you want to say a joke, but somebody keeps talking and <laughs> every second that goes by, the joke, the joke is a little is bit less crusty. funny yeah. Yeah. and you got to you got to make a call. So I was polite and it was still kind of funny. Oh yes. Yeah, like <laughs> jokes have expiration dates yeah, definitely. Bob, That's expiration Like times. the person that we're interviewing, they keep just talking and you know. <laughs> <laughs> so can you say when this book is coming out? No, no. I mean, I haven't even written it yet. Um, it's it's very much in the early stages. I sort of have a draft proposal in the works. And so probably in a couple of years, it'll be out, I would think. I mean, it's, it's the topic isn't going anywhere. Yeah. Um, among other things, it's, it's, it's so broad, right? Um, mm-hmm. You see these kind of phase transitions everywhere. Um, bacterium, bacterial quorum sensing, for example, uh, Bonnie Bassler's work on how bacteria communicate. If you have them sparsely populated in a dish, they don't really do much. But if you get enough of them together and close enough together and dense enough, it's like this something, a switch turns on. And they all start to fluoresce, for example, all at once. Mm-hmm. And that's a phase transition. So the fact that you can see it in so many different places in nature, the quantum to classical transition, for example, in physics is a phase Ooh, transition. Yeah. Anything emergent is, is, is somewhat a bit of a phase transition. You're going to have that moment where this, this, this property emerges out of these complex interactions, and that's, that's a phase transition. So the question is, how do you organize a book that broad? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're, we've been contending with that, too. What's the narrative structure? They always want to know what the narrative is. It's really cool shit. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all just really cool. That's the, that's the narrative. <laughs> and what I'm sure that good artificial narrative. intelligence is going to be operating on that edge of criticality as well. Uh, um, neural networks, for, for sure, um, yeah, do, yeah. If, if, they're, if they're efficient. Yes. It, what's the most surprising place that you found this criticality issue? Like you're like, oh, wow, that applies there too? Well, it, things like the emergence of space-time. I mean, a lot of this is very speculative, but um, 
if, if space-time is not fundamental, which many physicists believe it is not, um, there's a very interesting notion that essentially space-time is built out of in a series of entangled qubits, uh, in, in building this kind of complex network where you have like two qubits of information, quantum information, they get entangled, and then that pair gets entangled with another pair and so on and so on until finally you hit like some critical threshold and boom, space-time comes out. Yeah, what, how, what does happens? De- how does decoherence play into that, though? Wouldn't it, they decohere at some point? Yeah, that's actually a, an issue, um, but apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right? Because <laughs> we're talking about it. <laughs> of course, why we can't build space-time, right? But somehow, mm-hmm. again, nature has figured this out. <laughs> so. I mean, that would be helpful if we could figure that out. That would be helpful with quantum computers because it's hard not to make them decohere. Right, exactly. It takes so much control. Um, and so far, space-time hasn't disappeared. So, you know, um, somehow all those entangled cu- qubits stay, stay in coherence, actually don't, don't lose their entanglement. If they did, there well, would be, would- space-time would be in trouble. So, um, so you're saying – so the fundamental unit of space-time then is a qubit. I'm not saying it is. I'm saying that an enta- you know, en- so, yeah, entangled qubit pairs make up space-time, the fabric of space-time. Space-time is an emergent property. That's a kind of fairly wild idea in theoretical physics these days, but they borrowed it from a different field of physics, but it seems to work well uh, in this. So it, to me, it seems like a very nice explanation. How you test that is another guess altogether. Yeah, mm. that's the that's the hard part. That, that's yeah, one of those ideas. Though. Yeah, it's one of those ideas in science where you're like, God damn, there are some people who are must be so brilliant to come up with shit like that. <laughs> Think about that. Oh yeah, space time. It's entangled qubits on criticality. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> of course. Moving All right. on. Yeah. <laughs> you say so. I just tell people when they want to know the secret of the universe, or someone asks them what the secret of the universe is, to just look very mysterious, lead in and go entanglement. Yeah. <laughs> what do you say? Entanglement. Well, there's always one of those terms. Like every decade or two, it shifts, right? But that's that's the term now, like the mysterious sounding. It sounds profound because nobody really knows what it means. <laughs> well, they know what it means if they're, if they're in physics, but it's still a pretty mysterious thing. It's it's Einstein's spooky action at a distance, essentially. Right, right which, which we talked about. But you about can't use it to show. transfer yeah. information superluminally. No, you no. – <laughs> Correct. See, but um, you a lot in your recent interview. <laughs> <laughs> Or maybe he learned a lot. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I've heard some wacky stuff about uh, about uh, entangled particles and creating wormholes and stuff. Really, like you could really go off the deep end. I mean, which kind of makes sense because entanglement's like magical in in a lot of ways. So it's you, you know, it's it's I'm not surprised at some of the crazy stuff coming out to to try to explain it. Right. Well, and getting back to this idea of like criticality, it definitely seems like there is um, a universal um, motion. There's adaptation, there's change, there's constant flux. Otherwise, I mean, if we were just static, if we weren't always approaching that point where where change occurs, I don't think we would be sitting here talking to one another. So to see it in almost every field is actually not surprising, although it's, um, it's really fascinating that it kind of underlays the fabric of everything. Right. You know, it's, it's a very interesting metaphor, too. I mean, puberty is a phase transition. <laughs> it's like, mm-hmm. it's like, right? 
um, if you can figure out how to measure, you know, what the difference in the actual phases are. Um, but I actually got the idea for the book because I wrote an article for a local California journal about how it takes a phase transition to change a mind. Um, how, and this is something that's, of course, of, of great interest these days in, in, term, in the era of fake news and how do you reason with people. We're all familiar with things like the backfire effect and how, you know, someone can ha have a wrong belief. And if you present them with facts that contradict that belief, if, they, if it's a really core belief and it's tied to their identity, they're going to double down and they're going to reject the facts. And how do you overcome that knee-jerk reaction? And it's a very long, drawn-out process, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to change their mind the right way. But um, somehow, all these little interactions and things in their lives, if you're lucky, over time, it'll build up to a critical point where they'll be more receptive, and you can actually get them into the next phase of correct thinking. So, Jennifer, we should mention that part of the reason why we're having you on the show, we're always happy to have you on the show, but the reason why we're having you on the show now is because you are going to be the keynote speaker at Nexus in July. Yes, very excited about that. Yeah, we're all excited. This is July 12th to 15th in New York City, the Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. All right. Well, Jennifer, we really appreciate you giving us your time and talking with us, uh, and we really look forward to seeing your talk at Nexus. Oh, well, thanks. I'm looking forward to being there and seeing everyone in person. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week and four items. I know I'm doing this a lot recently. Too bad. Ah. Suck it up. <laughs> the, the topic is top species, new species of 2018. Ooh, new, species new species okay. of 2018. This is, I'm pulling this off of the um, Environmental Science and Forestry website. Okay. So, I'm going to describe four species discovered in 2018, but only three of them are real as described. One of them is either completely fake or I made, I changed significant facts about it. You ready? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay, here we go. Item number one. Wakaleo Shauteni is an extinct marsupial lion now confirmed to have been living in southern Australia as late as the 19th century. Item number two, the baffling beetle lives among one species of army ants, disguising itself as the abdomen of the ant onto which it latches. Item number three, a new species of orangutan has been discovered, which is estimated to share a common ancestor with other orangutans 3.38 million years ago. And item number four, Pseudoliparis swirii is a new species of snailfish discovered at 26,000 feet depth, making it the deepest fish ever discovered. Evan, go first. Wakaleo shuteni, shuteni, an extinct marsupial lion. I don't know about this one. Confirmed to have been living in southern Australia as late as the 19th century. I, I don't have much to say, but I do about the baffling beetle. Now, beetles are great. Love beetles. More beetles than what? Any other insect in the planet, I believe? There's more different kinds of beetles than any other category of living things. Yeah. Wow. Any yes. other category of living things? Well, multicellular. I'm not sure if that's true for bacteria. Yeah, I was just going to say. And they don't, they don't make up the most biomass, but they, I think they have the most diversity. 
Yeah, trees, plants make up the most biomass. Mm. But I mean, even of animals. I think like ants have more biomass than beetles. So that's cool. (laughs) Yeah, speaking of ants, it lives. Apparently the baffling beetle lives among one species of army ants. And it disguises itself as the abdomen of the ant onto which it latches. That's neat. I think there are other examples of this sort of behavior happening uh, specifically in the insect world. Um, Bugs are known to sort of blend in, disguise themselves with nature, certainly. You know, we know about the uh, uh, the moths looking like thorns and those famous sorts of uh, uh, examples, and I don't think this is that different from that. So I think that one's going to be right. Uh, the third one about the new species of orangutan, it's been discovered and shares a common ancestor with others 3.38 million years ago. Fascinating. That's really cool that they were able to figure that out. I think that one's too cool to not be true. The last one, oh boy, Pseudoliparius, Pseudoliparius, sweary. Pseudoliparus, I think. Pseudoliparus, deepest fish ever discovered? Oh, at 26,000 feet, huh? Well, there are creatures down there, and there are probably creatures deeper than that, but are they fish? Hmm, I don't know. I don't know about this one. This one leaves a lot of room for Steve to, I think, maybe have played with the facts on this one because I thought you could. Go, I thought you could go deeper than that. Well, it's either that one or the marsupial lion. I know nothing about the marsupial lion. I'm not having a good sense about this snailfish discovered at 26,000 feet deep. I don't think that's right. I, don't, I, 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 I think they've got fish, actual fish, deeper than that. So I'll say it's fiction. The snailfish discovered at 26,000 feet. Okay, Bob. I mean, five miles, that's, you know, the ocean doesn't get a hell of a lot more deep than that. So for me, the the orangutan really popped out. Like, really? A new species of orangutan? We just found it this year? They're big. <laughs> I mean, gee, you know? I mean, it, it could yeah, be Yeah, but the subtle. jungle is thick. That's a thick jungle. Bob. I know. I mean, it could be a subtle difference. They, they discovered that the two extant species of elephant was actually three, right? How long did we think there were two? Beetle, yeah, I could totally see that. Although, I mean, are those are those ants that stupid? Like, whoa, man, what did I eat last night? Uh, <laughs> how the hell did I, you know, how do you, are they, is it a really skinny beetle? Let's see, the uh, marsupial lion, lion, lion? Like, wow, that's, wow, that's kind of freaky. But um, yeah, 19th century, I ah, screw it, I'm going with the orangutan fiction. Okay, Kara. Steve, tell me if I'm understanding this correctly, because these were supposed to be things that were discovered this year. Well, they're they're listed as the 2018 top 10 new species. So they're they're discovered somewhat recently. Or they might, well, yeah, they might have been okay. described this year. Or yeah, exactly. So since one of these things is already extinct, the assumption is that they it was just discovered, like they just dug it up, or they just found evidence, or they just named it or described it. And I would think that if this marsupial lion was living as late as the 19th century, probably people would have described it before, is my guess. That there would be, you know, drawings of it or that, you know, the bones, you don't need fossils when something is living to be that old. There's just bones still or carcasses. Look at so the bones. That, look at the bones. So that one to <laughs> me – Makes me think that maybe this thing was discovered somewhat <laughs> recently, but it, it's but it's it, it's really extinct, not like recently extinct. Because I don't know, discovering a recently extinct animal sounds harder to justify. That I don't know. That's that's the one that's sticking in my craw a little bit. So that's the fiction. All right, Jay. Yeah, the, I'm kind of agreeing with Kara, but I mean to quickly go through these: the baffling beetle, 
I I completely believe that that fella exists and he does what you're describing. Sounds like a Harry Potter creature, doesn't it? Yeah, the yes. baffling beetle. Yeah, yeah, it does. Then again, scientists are really creative sometimes when they name these things. And sometimes they're no, not. I see no reason <laughs> to d- to refute the uh, orangutan and the the five mile deep fish. Damn it! Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm going with Kara on this one. I'll add my own little thing here. I think I would have heard about this lion. I'm a huge fan of lions. Um, and I think I would have heard about this guy if he lived, you know, that recently in uh, the history of, of the world. So, yeah, I agree. And that's the fake. Also, what's a marsupial lion? Is it a marsupial part, well, or a lion? Well, they're part of the marsupial family. It's like the Tasmanian tiger, right? I mean, it's Oh, so it's a lion-like really... marsupial. Yeah, it's a lion-like okay. marsupial, just like it's a tiger-like marsupial. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, cool. <laughs> We just had this conversation about dog-like cats and cat-like dogs. That's not why I love it. Oh, okay. All right. So you guys all agree on number two. That's right. The baffling beetle lives among one species of army ants, disguising itself as the abdomen of the ant onto which it latches. You all think that one is science, and Mm -hmm. that one is science. Yep. But I thought it was its butt. Technically, it's its abdomen. Oh, but it looks like his butt. It looks like his butt, but it is out. Okay. It's <laughs> this one has been all over my Twitter feed. This Cronauri. Oh, gosh. Get him off. A, yeah. Get him off. It's a, title, it's a tiny beetle that lives among these <laughs> one species of army ant in, in uh, Costa Rica, even though it's called Exiton mexicanum, but it's in Costa Rica. And you really, like, if you look at if you look at it, you really can't tell the difference between the ant's true abdomen and the fake beetle abdomen. They're kind of like one is above the other, but the one that's above is the beetle. You yeah, know. it looks like it has two little butts. But it looks like it has two. Yeah, it looks like it has two, two abdomens. <laughs> um, and it's basically—I don't know if it's technically a parasite, but it it follows the ants around because these army ants are nomadic. So that it latches on when the when they're traveling, and then when and then it comes off to feed on the scraps when the ants are like they'll they'll hang out in the same area for two to three weeks and harvest, and they'll you know they'll. They'll collect, they'll hunt for their food, and then the beetles will eat the scraps. And then when the ants move move out, they latch onto an ant, pretend to be an abdomen, and, and go along for a free ride to the next location. Hey, why not? Um, okay, let's go. Let's see. We'll go to number three. A new species of orangutan has been discovered, which is estimated to share a common ancestor with the other orangutans 3.38 million years ago. Bob, you think this one is the fiction. The rest of you think this one is science. And this one is... Say it. Science. Science. (laughs) And if any of you listened to my damn podcast, you'd know that because I interviewed one of the guys who discovered this thing. Yeah. You have a a show. (laughs) The Talk Nerdy podcast? Yes, the Talk Nerdy podcast. Is it available on iTunes and and at the Apple Store? I listen to Kara's podcast. (laughs) There you go. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This is, uh, yeah, so Pongo Tapanuliensis. Tapanuliensis. Located in Sumatra, Indonesia. So... Prior to discovering that this was its own species, there were uh, six non-human great apes, two gorillas, like the chimps and pong and bonobos, and two orangutan species. But there's the Sumatra and Borneo orangutans. uh, But they discovered that the Sumatra, the southern Sumatran orangutans are actually their own species. And they instantly became endangered, right? Because it's a very small population. Yeah, there's only 800 of them. Yeah, you start. Right. And they think that they separated the southern Sumatra, Sumatra species diverged actually a lot earlier than the other two species from each other. 
So the, the Sumatran and Bornean species diverged maybe 674,000 years ago, but this new one diverged 3.38 million years ago, so a lot longer. So it's actually much more genetically disparate from the other two. And that's interesting because they're on the same landmass. Yes. So you would think that the two that are on the same landmass are more genetically similar, but they're, but they're actually not. not. Yeah, because yeah. their they're breeding populations are separate. Yeah, which is interesting. So what do you call that again? There's like Sympatric. Sympatric, yeah. And then I don't know if there's an opposite. Uh, oh, allop- not, allopatric. Allopathic. Yeah, there we go. Allopatric and sympatric. There's also uh, parapatric. Ooh, I'm going to add these to the list. Okay, let's go on to number four. Pseudoliparis swirii is a new species of snailfish discovered at 26,000 feet depth, making it the deepest fish ever discovered. Evan, you think this one is the fiction. Jay and Kara think this one is science. I have no idea. This was a guess for me. This one is science. (laughs) I had a 50% like shot. Yeah, you had a 50-50. Yeah. So, yes, this is the deepest fish. There are non-fish I had a 25% that do, shot. That do live <laughs> dip deeper. Uh, so this they had submarines going down there, right? Looking either uh, looking for a fish but also gathering up samples. Uh they did spot what they think is a snailfish at 27,000 feet depth, yeah, but they that's did what I not thought. get they huh. didn't get a specimen so they couldn't confirm it. So someday I might be right. So you're right. So it's still the, the same species though. It, but it may be other, but we may extend the depth, the depth. from twenty six thousand to twenty seven thousand. But the one they did bring up a specimen from twenty six thousand feet and confirmed that it was this new species of snailfish. Uh, but interestingly, scientists estimate that the physiological limit for fish is what like how twenty seven thousand feet twenty seven thousand feet twenty seven thousand feet <laughs> is awesome. the physiological limit, and this fish is at that limit. If that fish that they saw was so, you mean that fish couldn't seen. exist at a deeper right? It'll couldn't get go yeah, because down there it's just um, what are they? They're these like arthropods. What are they called? Extreme Yeah, no, yeah. there's like a name for these special arthropods. There are crustaceans. The there are crustaceans down there. Yeah, yeah, there's a name. For it. You're right, but looking it up, uh, arthropods. So I used to the, date uh, a guy that went down. Well, he didn't go down, but he was with James Cameron when he did the deep dive. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I saw pictures of these little arthropods. Oh, amphipods. That's what they're yeah, called. Yeah, amphipods. Amphipods. Were, that was one of the other species that was uh, the amphipod, Epimeria oh, quasimodo. <laughs> uh, because it's hunchback. Cute. Yeah, that was on. That was one of the top ten. I did. I didn't use that one. But they're not fish, so they won't like implode at those depths. Right. Huh? They're amph- okay. amphipods. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all, right, all this means that Wakaleo shouteni is an extinct marsupial lion now confirmed. So here's the thing: confirmed, not discovered, but confirmed to have been living in southern Australia as late as the 19th century. But this is the fiction because this is from 23 million years ago. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah, so you were <laughs> correct, Kara. But they get counted as a new species, but it was an extinct species that was discovered. So that it lived in the Oligocene. Yeah, just feel like if it was like a thylacine ago. or something, there would be like evidence of it earlier well, than this year. Uh, yeah, but. It could have been that there were reports of it, but it wasn't confirmed. And now they found yeah. a specimen, and they and they confirmed that it actually. That's what I was going for. Gotcha. You know, is there? Are, but are there any other examples of that happening? Like I know, you know, yeah. we think about like dodo birds and thylacines yeah. and all. Yeah, but like there, we, there we is. know of them. There is. There was a, a blue antelope in Africa hmm. that was only known from like a pelt. You know. Oh, cool. Uh, but then they found another specimen uh, of it, and but it, it is unfortunately extinct. 
Um, and then there's the quagga. You know, Jay, you ever oh, hear yeah. of quagga? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, okay. There was also a tree, one, the Atlantic forest tree from Brazil was also made the list. Um, this is also a very endangered. Then this is a flower that is a um, heterotroph. It's heterotrophic. What does that mean, Kara? Oh, I forgot. Heterotrophic it it means food? same. No, that's autotrophic. No, that's autotrophic. Oh, so it, it doesn't so it's, it's, make it, it needs something, something else. No, so it just it, means it it needs something else to yeah, fulfill it, it, its nutritional So this this grows on fungus. So it's a flower that there grows entirely on fungus and um, is dependent on that for its food supply. But it's not parasitic. It doesn't kill the fungus. It's 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 a symbiont. It's a symbiont. There you go. Symbiont. Yeah. All right. Good job, Jay and Kara. Schmidt. And then, do you have a quote for us? Yes, I have a quote. There is no reason why the history and philosophy of science should not be taught in such a way as to bring home to all pupils the grandeur of science and the scope of its discoveries. And that was stated by Prince. Remember him, the musician? No. Louis-Victor Pierre Raymond de Broglie, French physicist, made groundbreaking contributions to quantum theory, Yeah, won the Nobel Prize for physics in 1929. The, the wave Broglier limit. Very, yeah. Ah, there it is. Or he the wave. He's the guy who calculated the wave, the quantum wavelength of stuff, right? Right. So which among, is uh, among other things, yes. Yeah. But yeah, that's, 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 a, that's a why the there big aren't things. quantum. There aren't significant quantum effects at the macroscopic level because the quantum wavelength gets smaller as you get bigger, and at like human size, the, your quantum lake wavelength is smaller than a Planck length. So essentially. Right, but- but you do have a wavelength, which is the yes. cool thing. Everyone has a wavelength, Bob? Everything oh. has a quantum wavelength. It nice. just gets so, it gets, it gets so tiny, it's insignificant. Trump Don't we also it. have like a, microbio- uh, like a microbiotic cloud, remember? Yeah, the bio. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. We yeah. each have our, our, our cloud. Our wavelength and a cloud. cloud. If, you, if you could visualize the bacteria around us, we would all be pig pen. Pig pen. <laughs> yeah. So good news about the book, guys. We have good an update. News. Don't forget that the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe book is coming out in early October, but you can pre-order it right now. You can go if you go to skepticsguidebook.com. Uh, it'll list all the places where you can get it. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Walmart, Target, Books a Million, Powell's, and IndieBound. You can nice. buy them at your vendor of choice. You could also get the ebook. You can pre-order the ebook. This again is be out in early October. Yeah, but Steve, what about all of the people that want to buy the book that are in Australia? And New Zealand, and in the UK, and in Israel, that got Wakanda. the book returned to them, or their order was canceled. Yeah, so a lot of people have been emailing us saying that they pre-ordered the ebook and then the order got canceled. That's because our publisher is only marketing the book in North America, but we are contracting with publishers around the world to bring the book to you. And recently, we have contracted with. Essentially, a UK publisher, although it's the same house as our current publisher. So it's just another part of the same publishing company. But what that means is that they now will be marketing the book in the UK, Australia, New Zealand, and in Europe, but only an English-speaking version. We have a separate publisher who will be publishing the book in German, one in Russian, and one in Chinese. Wow. Yay. So nothing Nothing in Israel yet. But Nothing well, in Hebrew yet. Yeah, but stand not, by. Not yet. So yeah, but most Israel—I mean, most people that I know from Israel can speak and read and write but, in English. That's, yeah, I don't, but I don't know yeah. if the publisher—they just said Europe. I don't know. Oh, if that Europe—that might not be confused. No, yeah, that won't count. Israel. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. 
So uh, we will let you know when you will be able because because they're making their own versions of the book, even though the UK version is going to be in English, you know, like the, like our existing Yeah, but they'll the spell book. color with a U. Yeah, they, they actually <laughs> they're going to redo the cover, guys. They're going to make yeah. their, they're going to make their own version of our cover. And uh, so anyway, when that's available for pre-order in those countries, UK, Australia, New Zealand, we will let you know. Uh, you'll be able to do that. But for if you are in the U.S. or Canada, you can pre-order it right now. Right. And if yeah, this is a uh, this is you know essentially the the book is called the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. This is the you know the book that people have been asking us to write for years. It's like it's a combination of a great introduction to scientific skepticism, and it goes you know systematically through all the things that a good skeptic needs to know. But also, it's a really meaty discussion going beyond what we typically discuss on the show, like really going into detail on all the, the topics about like how crappy your memory is and all the ways in which we are biased and like how to approach skeptical questions and historical episodes that are good lessons on how science works and how pseudoscience works, et cetera. So uh, whether you're just starting to listen to the show or you've been listening to us for 13 years, this is the book that you want. Buy it now. Buy five <laughs> copies now. True. <laughs> you, can, you can order multiple copies i understand that's acceptable you can't <laughs> yes yes and it is it, it does make a great gift yes, it, it does. does it is coming out coming for the out. holiday it is coming out for the holidays so uh you, yep it, you keep that in mind they're great stocking stuffers stocking stuffers menorahs you know yeah. for hanukkah and uh, the eight nights of hanukkah Qua- you're good there Kwanzas, festivus festivus your gift giving winter solstice you name it yeah. And Evan, you have an announcement too. You actually, you and our, some of our friends are starting your own podcast. Yeah, that's right. And we've launched it just recently. Our podcast is called Which Game First? And we are a review show in which we play lesser known, sometimes obscure tabletop games. Now, these are not video games. These are not computer games. These are old-fashioned analog games that you used to play when you were a kid before the internet, for those of you who remember that. We play them, we review them, and at the end of each review, we vote whether to dig up the game or bury it. <laughs> Celeste DeAngelis is the host of the podcast, and she is the sister of Perry DeAngelis. So you may not know it, but I'm a lifelong gamer. I've been involved in the gaming industry before. You have as well, Steve. Um, you know, we've ran a LARP company for, for several years. We've co-authored books together and designed some other games, which never managed to make it to market, but we're in the industry. And uh, we're joined with Celeste, myself, and three other co-hosts, uh, our friend Joe Unfried, Ed Povolitis, and Mikey Grenier. We've known them since the early 1990s. We used to attend LARPs together. Both Mike and Ed are in the industry. They run a company called Angry Duck Games. So we want you to check it out. WhichGameFirst.com is our website. We're available on all the platforms in which you normally get your podcasts, iTunes, Android, everything you can think of. We want you to give us a listen and let us know what you think. All right. Good luck with that, Evan. Thank you, Steve. It does sound like a lot of fun. Yeah, it is fun. And thank you guys for joining me this week. You got Thanks, it, brother. Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions. 
dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. Hey, and remember about KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math really fun. Their mission is to provide the next generation of innovators with the tools and foundation they need to become creative problem solvers and critical thinkers. Kids can create their own arcade games, construct a hydraulic claw, or tinker with electronics and motors. KiwiCo is offering the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more about their project projects for kids, visit KiwiCo.com slash skeptics. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash skeptics.